All information contained in this podcast is general in nature and does not consider your individual circumstances. You should consider the appropriateness of this information with regards to your individual objectives, financial situation and needs. Welcome to Sharing More Than The Sheets, a podcast to help you and your partner make better financial and lifestyle decisions so that you can both focus on the things that you love. I'm your host, Michael Curry, financial planner, green thumb, husband, and just dad. A few months ago, I officially became a beekeeper. And through my online research, I came across a Dr. Tim Hurd, who is the president of the Australian Native Bee Association and has literally written the book on native beekeeping. I'm so excited to have him here with us today to talk about this exact topic. Welcome, Doctor. Thank you for having me, Michael. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure. And um, when I became a beekeeper, and again, I say officially became a beekeeper because I have a beehive in my backyard, I had a lot of questions from friends and clients saying I didn't know it was that simple to keep a beehive, um, to, to keep bees. And a few of them didn't even know the difference between a native Australian bee and the other bees that we normally see on TV shows and movies and, you know, on the front of jars of honey. And I'm very fortunate that a friend of mine, I'll give a big shout out to my friend, Matt, who sort of told me about it initially. Um, and I've always been fascinated about bees, but apart from what my friend Matt told me, I really had no idea as well six months ago. Um, and the reason I thought it would be really exciting to have you on the show today is to help us educate our listeners about Australian native bees and just about the, I guess, the processes, the the ins and outs and the responsibilities of keeping them in the backyard. If we could sort of just start off, if, if you don't mind, just introducing yourself, just a bit about your background um, and I guess, how someone decides to specialize in study Australian native bees or, you know, and literally ends up writing a book about it. Yeah, sure. But before I do, Michael, I'd just like to welcome you to the world of, uh, of native bees. Uh, I think uh, the way you've described it is the way many people do is that they kind of jump in. They don't really know what they're doing. They've not really heard of it, um, but they, they do hear about it and they get hold of it. A hive of bees, and all of a sudden, this whole new world is is opened to them, and it, it is very exciting. And um, so, uh, thank you for your introduction. That was that was a you know a, a typical case of um, where we are at the moment with beekeeping in Australia, where um, it, it's it's not really that well known yet, but um, there are there's an explosion of interest, and many people are in situations like yours where they're just starting their journey, and it's. It's a very exciting one, but I should warn you, it is an addiction. So okay. you know, be be prepared for a, a lifetime habit. You know, don't start unless you're prepared to um, to have to you know to be hooked on these bees for the rest of your life. Yeah, okay. Thank you. I won't tell my wife that. <laughs> no, no, don't don't say that. Don't tell your wife. <laughs> um, but Michael, the way I started was a very long time ago. My journey began a long time ago. I. I'm a professional entomologist, so that means an insect scientist. And I started studying, I've always, ever since I was a kid, I was interested in insects, bugs, creepy crawlies. Um, maybe my short sightedness had something to do with that. I can see things up close to small things very well, better than most people, but that's the irony of being short sighted. You see small things better than other people. So I've always been attracted. And then I, I went to university and uh, I studied insects. I became, um, the more study I did, the more hooked I became. I ended up doing a, a doctorate 
And uh, my, uh, my university supervisor suggested a project to me, which was to look at the role of our native bees in the pollination of crops. And that was, um, that was uh, you know, a, 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 the year that made me, if you like, that was a turning point in my life because um, I started off on, on, on my journey and um, I learned a lot about bees very quickly and then I, um, I, I completed a PhD in the topic um, and I went off actually, I got a job, I went off and did 25 years in a different career, which was entomology, of course, it was the, the study of insects, it was with CSIRO, and it was very much applied research in the public good, but um, I never lost this passion that I had for native bees, so I always kept that ticking over, as, as a, partly as a hobby and partly as my employees sort of indulged me to do a little bit here and there on it. Um, as part of my job. So, um, yeah, 35 years ago, um, degrees at university, um, a career in, in entomology, and then about 10 years, about five years ago, I decided I would, um, I, would, I would quit my job, even though it had been a wonderful career. I quit it and um, I thought, well, you know, um, I'm age 55. If I'm going to do anything else in my life, now's a good time to, to do it before I get too old to change. And so I, I, um, I left scientific research and became a, uh, a businessman, I suppose. I, became, uh, I built a business around um, native bees. So I became a breeder and, and, um, and vendor of, of native bee hives and the products associated with it. And um, along with that, I, I got the opportunity to, to write a book which was based on my my many years of, of working with these bees and I suppose the book uh, came from giving workshops so I had given workshops all of that time really I'd never I'd never stopped and there was this there was this real there's a real demand out there in, in the community for knowledge generally I think about our natural environment but bees in particular uh, and so uh, I could always fill a room full of people it was easy the bees were just naturally very attractive to people. Um, and uh, and so I, I continued to give these workshops, and I knew exactly what people wanted to know, what, what where most people were starting from, their, their you know the knowledge basis that most people have, and so you know that's where you start to build. You write a book, you've got to start from the level of knowledge that you expect your reader to have, and then build from there. Um, so I was able to to write a book. I was privileged to be in the position where I could write a book that. Uh, was appealing to a broad audience, and so that's yes. been a wonderful experience for me. And to to a lot of people, um, I mean, the first thing that many actually may not know is that native bees are stingless in nature, um, and that was probably my main reason for getting, sorry, my main barrier initially um, to having bees because I've got children in the backyard regularly. Um, but if you could sort of explain what native bees actually are, uh, yeah, where they're sure. found, and I guess. The main differences between the normal, I guess, because I guess the bee that most of us will see on the on a jar of honey or in the movies is an, a European bee. Is is that right? That's absolutely correct. Yeah, yeah. So one of the you know when the English colonists first came to Australia, they brought lots of things that with them to to feed themselves. So they brought cattle and they brought wheat and they brought honeybees as well. So honeybees were you know to provide honey for the early um, settlers, the early uh, European settlers in our country. 
and and those bees quickly spread across Australia. So humans through human activities uh, of you know managing bees, um, they they was they were spread that way. But they also went feral. That means that mm. colonies of bees would swarm off and occupy natural locations in the Australian bush. So mm. they spread naturally as and they spread through human management as well. And pretty soon the in, entire Australian continent. Um, was um, was you know abounding in these in these European bees. So you know for, that's been the case for nearly two hundred years. Uh, next wow. year, in fact, is the two hundredth year centenary of the arrival of of European honeybees in Australia. So we know them very well. We most people are very familiar with them. They're a very well studied insect. They're very much part of our, you know, our life, just you know, of our food and our and our understanding of, of the natural world. Um, but there are, as you say, this other group of bees, um, which are our native social stingless bees. Now, I, I just want to take one step backwards there and say that there are many different types of native bees, species we call them. About two thousand species we estimate. Wow. Most of those are solitary insects, and they occur all over Australia. But there's this one group which we call the stingless bees, so they are our native social bees. So just like honeybees, they exist in these communal societies, um, these social structures where there's a queen and many workers, and they all live together naturally in a hollow, and humans can modify that behaviour by transferring them into artificial wooden hives and managing them, breeding them, and, of course, they both produce honey. So it's only the native social stingless bees and the introduced European bees that produce honey. They both have this characteristic as social insects of storing food in their nest for themselves that we as humans can extract sustainably from those nests for our own nutritional needs. So the European honeybees um, are, are bigger. Their hives are bigger. The individual bees are bigger. Uh, they have this typical yellow and black colour that we're all familiar with. Uh, they have been kept for thousands of years. So you can go right back uh, through history and find that um, people have been keeping bees for as long as we've been farming, probably. So the ancient Egyptians kept bees, for example, European honeybees. Mm. Uh, the native stingless bees of the world have a, a, have a history of being kept in other parts of the world. So, for example, in Central America, they, they were kept by the indigenous people there. Uh, in Australia, they were um, very highly regarded by our indigenous people who would collect the honey from their nests as well. They're much smaller bees. The individual bees are much smaller. They're black. They don't have any coloration. They're not stripy. They don't have yellow or black or any colored stripes. They're jet black in color. Uh, they're much smaller. Their nests are much smaller, and you get a lot less honey from them. But their, their social lives are just as complex and interesting as that of honeybees. Yeah, nice. And and I guess if we can sort of touch on also the, the benefits of, of having bees, because um, I mean, f for me, my main one that I know about is the sustainability, you know, the benefit of the fact that there, there are less and less bees in the wild. So th the more that we have, the the longer that they're, they're around for, essentially. Sure. Um, the other thing for me was to teach our children, um, just for them to see the nature of bees, because it's actually pretty exciting to watch them coming into the hive and you know, they're returning their pollen back to, to make honey. 
and that's not something that we get to see all the time. Yeah. Uh, are there any other benefits that you could mention, I guess, or that any obvious be- benefits of, of keeping bees? Yeah, I'm glad you started with those two that you gave, Michael. They're really great examples of how um, bees, keeping bees can enrich our lives um, through supporting conservation, supporting our native wildlife, and through education, particularly of our children who have this innate fascination uh, of bees. Um, I often wonder whether... Many of our, um, you know, as humans, we're, we 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 put structures in place to to bring our children up to be to be you know happy, healthy uh, members of of our society. But one thing I think we do a little bit poorly, to be honest, is that we don't really encourage their natural love of our nat- natural environments. So I think I think mm. we all start off with that as children, and then we it sort of becomes less relevant in our very modern worlds. Um, but we benefit from it, and that's been proven by research that people who have contact with nature are happier and they're healthier. And the reason for that is because I think when you when you get out into the natural environment, when you go bushwalking, when you go gardening, when you play with your dog, or you when you keep bees, you go in, into a different place, and you know all the worries of the world, uh, all your pressures and anxieties, kind of just. You forget them for a while, and and you 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 uh, it's a way of relaxing and and um, and improving your mental health. So definitely, um, they have all sorts of mental health benefits, um, and uh, and conservation benefits to us. You know, I don't think many people have to be convinced that looking after our natural world, looking after nature, is just so important. And particularly, you know, uh, again, our um, our modern lifestyles are not really compatible with protecting our natural environment. Um, we tend to engage in activities that aren't always in the best interests of conserving and protecting our natural environment. And, you know, we have to be reminded, I think, that this is this is an important thing. Without nature, we don't have anything. Without nature, there is no life, including human life. So conservation is very important. So thank you for starting with those two very important things, the importance of nature for a sustaining life and also for our own health as humans. But in addition to that, there are economical benefits of uh, of keeping bees too, and I would put that into two categories. One is the pollination of our crops, mm. and the other one is the production of honey. Um, so pollination of crops is, in fact, the most important of those two. Many of our the plants that we grow that provide our food need to be pollinated by bees. The bees need to visit those flowers to fertilise those flowers so that you get a good yield from those, from the, uh, from the, those crops. Um, so that's, you know, that's worth many billions of dollars to us annually uh, in Australia alone. Uh, and production of honey as well. Um, most of our honey is derived from European honey bees, but um, small amounts of this boutique native bee honey are being produced and it's unique and it's different and we're discovering that it's got some wonderful properties as well so um it, mm. it will also be a niche honey product that's that's uh, an important part of our nutrition into the future i believe and i guess if somebody's listening to this and they're starting to think okay well what's involved in in keeping australian stingless bees and uh where can i get some bees from where do i get a hive from and what what's what are the responsibilities involved i guess as to where to put it um maintenance etc um if you could sort of 
explain the first step and what's involved in, in going down that sure. path? Yeah, absolutely. So it's the first thing I will say is that it isn't hard, but you can mess it up unless you learn a few basic uh, rules or guidelines. So I encourage anybody to who's interested in keeping our native stingless bees to get out there and, and get themselves a hive, but just do a little bit of research first. Um, fi- find out where you can keep them. So can you even keep them in the area where you live? Because then they don't naturally live everywhere. So I said before that native bees occur Australia-wide, and that's true, but our native social stingless bees, the ones that we're focusing on now, um, the ones that you can keep in hives and produce honey, they're only uh, naturally occurring in the warmer parts of Australia, and that's the only places where you can really keep them. So by that I mean uh, on the east coast of Australia, from the tip of Cape York all the way down to... um, southern New South Wales, and then across the northern parts of Australia as well. So if you live in Brisbane or Sydney or anywhere in between or up the Queensland coast or into the Northern Territory, then you can keep them. If you're in Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth, Hobart, unfortunately you cannot. So just the warmer parts of Australia. So um, once you, you know that you're in an area where you can keep them, then you need to consider your your space, your yard, your farm, whatever, your even your balcony on your on your if you live in a, an apartment, you can keep them there, but you just have to consider place placement and positioning. So uh, you, they do need to be protected. So these bees um, are a little bit more sensitive to environmental extremes. By that I mean heat and cold in particular. Uh, than honeybees, for example. Um, so you do need to protect them. You do, you'd need to give them, they need to be provided with a good home. So if you're uh, a beekeeper, you need to know how to construct a hive that's suitable for these bees. If you buy a hive, make sure that the beekeeper you're getting it from is an experienced beekeeper who makes good quality, thick walled, well insulated, well constructed hives. And then you, as the keeper, need to place that hive in the right position. So they're just a couple of the tips that you need to know to get started. But I would encourage you to do a bit more research and a bit more reading. There's some, I mean, I, I would encourage you to, to, to read my book or um, there's, some, there's some good um, websites uh, around as well. Aussie Bee is a good website to start with to get information uh, basic information about these bees. Yeah, okay. And, and I did notice on your website, um, sugarbag.net, um, in the FAQ section, there is actually a bit of information there. And that's sort of where I sort of headed the first time when I started looking. Yeah. Um, and um, in, yes, the, the other website that you mentioned as well does help because um, I believe th- the other website that you mentioned, uh, Honey Bee, was it that you said? Uh, Aussie Bee. Uh, Aussie Bee, sorry. Um, Aussie Bee. There's a, there's a section there about where to buy th- them from as well. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah um, another very would you recommend that? Yeah, I do recommend that. And uh, there's another website too called nativebeehives.com. And uh, it's it's very good as well. It also has a list of sellers of people who breed and sell native bees and who who provide them, um, you know, to customers. Um, yes. And uh, so both of those websites do provide that list, and they're often divided up into areas, uh, you know, depending on where you are and what species of bee you might want. So yeah, that will that will help you as a customer find the 
the best beekeeper in your area to purchase from? Yeah, because from what I've heard, um, if sometimes buying a hive from somebody that's not experienced can it, it could lead to an outcome that's not that favorable because for example if the hive isn't strong enough or if it hasn't been uh, i guess split properly as well it could cause some issues is that right yeah that's right so um i would encourage everyone to go to an experienced well-established beekeeper and here is a critical crucial point that make sure your beekeeper provides a guarantee um, and i suggest okay. that they should provide a one-year guarantee and the reason for that is that these bees the individual bees are quite long-lived. Now, the colonies should live forever. You know, there's, there's, because these social bee colonies consist of many individuals who, that are being born, living their lives, and then dying, um, the colonies should be continually, continually producing new generations of bees. So it, really, there's no limit to how long they can live for. However, if a colony is queenless, or broodless, which means there's no young bees, or queenless, there's no new bees being laid, broodless means there's no young bees that have been laid by the queen, or has no food resources, so there's a risk of it starving, um, yes. then you could buy that hive uh, from, an, um, from say, let's say, an inexperienced beekeeper, someone who's starting out and hasn't really learned how to do it properly yet. You could buy it from them. It would look fine. It could continue to look fine for several months, but then ultimately it could die. It's got no future because it hasn't been properly prepared um, for, uh, for a long life. Yes. So just okay. make sure you do get one from an experienced beekeeper that offer, who offers a guarantee, and uh, you can be confident that you can go, take it take it back if it if it hasn't if it hasn't survived. Okay, and, and earlier I did mention the term splitting a hive. Um, can you explain that as well to listeners that aren't yeah, familiar sure. with? Sure. Um, so we talk about propagating these bees. So if you've got one hive, you can create two. And I think that's one of the reasons why these bees have become so popular is that anybody in their backyard can propagate bees and create two hives from one. And that's an enormously rewarding process you know i think most people would feel very proud of themselves when they do that the first time and you know it's actually not very difficult to do but um but you can mess it up <laughs> so um there's a couple of ways of doing it um there's two main schools i suppose you could call them of thought with regard to propagating stingless bees in australia and some pretty healthy discussions between those different schools regarding the best way of doing it. And most experienced beekeepers acknowledge that both methods have got pros and cons associated with them. Um, but they, the two methods are called, um, usually it's splitting versus deduction. They, they, they go under different names. Some people call it hard splitting versus soft splitting. And basically with hard splitting, what you do is you have your bees in a box that, that, that's divisible, that the box can be divided into two sections. You separate those two halves of the box and you couple each half to an empty half. So that's a pretty simple process. It's more a little bit more complex than that, but that's putting it in the simplest terms possible. And that's what some people call hard splitting or traditional splitting. Other people, instead of opening the box they connect it with a tube to another empty box. 
And uh, basically, you're forcing the bees from the mother hive to move through this empty box. And with time, they may establish a separate daughter colony in that empty box. That's called budding or adduction or soft splitting. And some people regard that as being a, uh, a gentler a gentle and, and, and more reliable method of, of breeding them, but it also takes a lot more time and it often doesn't work. It often just fails to progress. Um, but it is a very interesting process as well. So there, you can see that there are, there are benefits and, and disadvantages in both methods. And most experienced beekeepers will utilise the two methods depending on the circumstances. Okay, and and when 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 should someone divide their hive? Is is there a is it a period of time, or is there something that? Yeah, sure. I there's a there's, for? there's a couple of rules there. One is the hive has to be strong. So whichever method you're using of the two that I've just described, budding versus splitting, uh, the hive, the parent colony that you're propagating from, needs to be a strong, full colony. So a strong colony means. It's got a well-developed brood. So the brood are the younger bees in the hive. So I should take a step back there and talk about the life cycle of bees. So the queen lays an egg. That egg hatches into a larva that feeds and grows. And then it pupates in order to... So the larva is just like a little grub. It pupates and restructures its whole body so it then emerges as a fully formed adult with wings and legs and a head and eyes and antennae, etc. So that's a process that we call metamorphosis that in, many insects go through when they go from being a larva, a simple grub, to a much more complex adult stage. And uh, bees go through all the immature stages occur in cells inside the nest, and it's only the adult stages that uh, are the bees that you, you see, and that they ultimately become the bees that forage from the nest and they leave the nest and they come back with, with food for the hive and they defend the nest and etc. So you need a lot of brood if you want to propagate a hive. You need a hive that's got, you know, around about 10,000 brood cells. That means a, a potential population of 10,000 immature bees there to form the next generation of adults in that hive. You all, it also needs to have lots of stored food. So these bees naturally store uh, the two foods that they need and that they collect from flowers in the hive. So those two foods are pollen and Honey. Well, they collect nectar and they convert it into honey and store that honey. So those two foods they store in the hive. That, that those two foods are important for when uh, there's not fresh food coming into the hive. They can go to their reserves and utilize those reserves, just like humans do. We uh, stockpile food in our houses for when um, when this something occurs, like a global pandemic, for example. Um, yep. Don't know so, what that is. <laughs> So um, the, the hives that you're propagating from also needs to have plenty of stored reserves as well. So if you've got a strong hive, then uh, you then need to decide how you're going to split it and you need to decide when you're going to split it. So you'll need a box, you'll need a, next, a new hive to do that, and you'll, uh, that hive needs to be well built, so get some good guidelines on how to build a hive, what to build it of, and what are the tips, important tips in making sure that it's going to make a good home for this, this next bee colony that you're creating? Uh, and time of year is important too. Now, that depends on where you are. As you go further south and the climate winter gets longer and colder, then that can limit your bee 
breeding activities greater and greater. In northern Australia, you can do it pretty much all year round, but in Sydney, for example, you're confined to just the warmer few months of the year. Okay. These podcasts have been brought to you by Better Financial Planning Australia. To book a free 15-minute phone chat, visit betterfinancialplanning.com.au. And as far as, and just to clarify, as far as maintenance is concerned, um, there's, from what I understand, there's there's no, really no maintenance involved at all. Once the hive is there, you literally just can just leave it. Is that That's right? exactly right. And the good thing about these bees is that you can really decide what your own level of involvement uh, is to be. So if you purchase yeah. a hive or get hold of a hive, if you're lucky enough to be gifted a hive, then you can place it. If you place it carefully, follow the guidelines, place it well in your yard uh, or on your veranda, uh, then you can just enjoy them forever and not do anything. Zero maintenance. Uh, yeah. If you want to get more involved and if you want to extract honey, for example, if you want to propagate the hive, and I, we recommend that the first thing that anybody does when they uh, start their beekeeping journey, uh, if they do want to get involved a little bit more, is that they propagate their hive and they get themselves set up with two hives. And there's a lot of advantages to that because uh, once you've got two hives, you've got confidence, you've, you've already created two and then you can decide what you're going to do from there. And your journey can take um, various paths from there. You can decide, for example, you might want to extract a bit more honey. You might decide that you're going to breed and, 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 and grow more hives for your yard. I know some people with just ordinary suburban yards and they've bred from one hive up to 20 hives uh, in a, wow. over a, you know, perhaps a decade or less even. And, uh, and, they're, and, you know, and they've, they've just got hooked on, on a hive breeding thing and they just find it tremendously rewarding and interesting they try different techniques and they they then have an abundance of hives where they can start to do their own experimentation and their own thinking and their own ways of doing things for example if you split a hive or butt it and it doesn't go according to plan then if you've got another hive then you can use that other hive to strengthen the struggling hive so you can you can get into all sorts of interesting models of um of beekeeping if if that's the direction that you wish to take uh, or as i started off by saying if you just wish to have a hive that you go to and you enjoy and you show people and it's a it's a, it's a point of interest and it's a it's, it's something where you can i know many people who just take you know they, they get home from work and they take a glass of wine down the backyard or on their veranda and they sit and watch their bees for a while and they, they just find that a terrific way of of, of relaxing and they, they do no more than that. Um, so, yes, yeah. you can choose your own involvement. And I guess just some things to be careful of um, when having a hive. Um, you mentioned placements. If you, if you can sort of briefly just explain um, the good places and the bad places to, to, to put a hive. And and secondly, things like in, insecticides, you know, mm. spraying weeds in the backyard, etc. I've heard that's something that, you know, you shouldn't do anywhere near a hive at all. Yeah. So uh, with regard to placement, um, I mentioned that they are a little bit uh, susceptible to environmental extremes. So, you know, if you get a heat wave and the temperature goes above 40 degrees and your hive is sitting in the full sun, you will probably kill it. It, it will probably die in those, that extreme wow. situation. So we do encourage everyone to place their hive in summer in the shade. Uh, however, winter, um, in winter they do benefit from getting a little bit of morning sun, particularly a little bit of sun, but particularly morning sun. 
So in some cases you might move your hive from winter to summer. You might step it slowly in and out of the shade. You can do that very easily. Just pick it up and move it less than a metre per day over a few days from, say, under the shade of a tree or into a, a sunnier position. That's, that's definitely doable. So that's something that you'll, you'll learn with time. But generally, most people just do, don't want to have to manage them too much. They don't want to have to move them every season. So they do find a position that's got a little bit of morning sun, hopefully in winter, but then full shade uh, in summer, especially in the, um, the afternoon. My, my rule of thumb when considering where to place a hive is, would you be comfortable there? You, as a human, imagine yourself sitting in that position all year round, all day, and would you be comfortable there? So, you know, you, I'm sure you can find a position. And often the verandas that humans build around our houses are just like that. They're designed, they're positioned, so they're very comfortable places to be all the year round. And so they're often great places to put beehives. And, and you can with our native stingless bees. And I encourage that is to have them right up on, in your living spaces, your outdoor living spaces around your house because they're, they're, you get to see them and enjoy them more, and they're often great places to put the hives as well. But um, even in the backyard, as long as it's a, um, protected from the summer sun, that's, that's the important thing. Now, there was a second part to your question, which was about insecticides, um, pesticides in general. And I think a good thing about keeping these bees is it does make you more aware of the use of of, in, of toxins, chemical toxins. You know, we, humans use um, insecticides to kill insect pests. We use herbicides to kill weeds. We use fungicides to control diseases on our, on our fruit trees. We use all sorts of toxic chemicals um, to manage pests around on our farms and around our houses. And I do recommend that people have a good think about whether they really need to be using those chemicals. And in many cases, you don't. So, you know, I mean, I guess if you want a perfect lawn and there are, there's clover growing on your lawn, then, you know, herbicides might be a good way of, of controlling that. But just have a think, well, you know, is that clover really doing any harm? Is it really, you know, maybe think of it, think of it as an opportunity rather than a, rather than a problem. Think of it as well. Maybe I can, you know, mow around my clover and make it a feature. Um, make a put a square of clover in the middle of my yard or somewhere in my yard so that it, it's actually feeding bees. Um, and 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 it's like a little flower bed, if you like, a little patch yeah. of nature. Um, and don't spray. That, that that's exactly what happened to me. So it's it's like I see it. It's like having children. It's like before we had children we probably weren't as health conscious about the type of food we were buying and the environment around our house. Um, but since having children, you know, you suddenly care more about preservatives and food or um, you, you start getting chemicals that are a bit more natural than, you know, the those that are synthetically produced. Um, and it's, it's very similar. Like the, the point you mentioned is exactly what happened to me. I used to, in our backyard, we get lots of weeds. I think the weeds are actually plotting against me because I'll literally spray <laughs> them and they're back two weeks later. But it got me thinking, first of all, okay, I shouldn't spray near the bees. But then I was thinking, should I even spray at all? Because they literally grow back four weeks later. Mm. Um, so now I just pull them out or I'll give the kid, I'll, I'll bribe the kids and tell them that they'll get chocolate if they rip out all the weeds. So <laughs> yeah. 
it's you know it's yeah it's exactly what happened to me because yeah. we become more conscious i guess of the people effect. people do love tight humans love tidiness there's something in our brain we like things to be ordered and, and you know neat and square and yes. organized and and mostly that's good but sometimes it works against us i think i think uh, sometimes a bit of disorder can can actually help and um you know i would say you know if you you know, people. Many people hate spiders around. You know, outside the on the on the weatherboards of their house, and they get pest control operators to come in and spray those spiders. But you know, think if you think it through, you'd realise well, those spiders aren't doing any harm. In fact, they're doing yeah. good. They're cleaning up mosquitoes and pest flies, and you know, there's very very low risk to humans from those spiders. So you know, do we really need to spray that insecticide against those spiders? Some things you absolutely do need to do. If you've got termites attacking the very structure of your house, then there's no doubt that you've got to do something about that. And one of the few options that we do have for termites is to use insecticides. So, you know, that's a case of where really there's there's very few options. But in most cases, in fact, you don't need to use insecticides around your house. I guess the other example of that too, apart from insecticides, is do you really need to tidy up as much in your garden? Because sometimes, you know, gardens that are a little bit bushy and a little bit rough and a little bit overgrown provide habitats for all sorts of, of, of living organisms. So, you know, yeah. often you just make a pile of, of, of uh, lawn, of, you know, garden scraps, make a, make a little pile somewhere, just tuck them in the corner of your yard, and you'll find that that is habitat. You'll find all sorts of organisms, beneficial organisms live in there. You might find a blue-tongued lizard lives in there and that blue tongue lizard will come out and, and eat your snails that are attacking your veggies so you actually get you get a you get a you get a web of life um something yes. happening that that's that you can manage to your to your benefit rather than rather than uh, you know excluding all of these these organisms from 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 your backyard um, and you mentioned something before about moving the hive um and i'll admit this is probably to date, this is the most fascinating lesson that I was taught when it comes to, to bees and their behavior and the way they act is moving a hive because there's a rule, isn't there, that it's either, I think it's either you move them half a meter or one meter or you move them three kilometers. Mm-hmm. Can you sort of explain that as well? Because you'll explain it better than I will. Um, and, <laughs> sure. Yeah. And, um, and it I said it just, it just shows how smart, these, how smart they are. It, it does. It does show how... Uh, how these bees, which which really got very tiny brains, but um, in fact they can use their brains very effectively um, in many ways. And you know, we as humans, you know, we've got this huge brain. You know, we've got we've got a brain that's the most complex thing in the whole universe. This this tremendously complex, huge structure that's able to do the most extraordinary things. Um, a bee's got a brain that's a fraction of the size, and it doesn't have anywhere near the power of our brain, but it's still capable of doing some really quite extraordinary things. I mean, if you look inside a nest of these bees and uh, observe the complexity of the structures that they build and look at how perfectly adapted those structures are to providing the best home possible for those for those bees living there, um, it, it, it's really quite remarkable. And many people just... They never get tired of them. I, I still don't get tired. I've opened thousands of, of native beehives in my life, and every one I open, I still look inside, and I'm still just dumbfounded by the by the beauty and the and the complexity of it. This is all constructed by 
the individual, the activities of thousands of, of insects all working together for the common good. So there, there is some extraordinary things. But sorry, I've diverged. Your question was about um, another aspect of bee behavior, which is their homing instinct. So these bees need to be able to find their way home. They, they're very good at going out and collecting resources and then bringing those resources back. So they've got to be really good at learning how to get home. And they do that mainly by vision. They learn what the entrance to the hive looks like and then from a for greater distance what landmarks exist around the hive that will zoom them in on that point where their entrance is. And then going but further back from that, they learn bigger patterns of the landscape that will enable them to get home. They, they, they keep a map in their brain of the, in, uh, of the areas surrounding the hive and they use that to find their way home, to navigate back home. And they learn that. They learn that uh, within their lives by, uh, by doing orientation flights. So as young bees, they leave the nest and they, they look around them and they learn the positions and colours and shapes of things, objects that are visual cues that will enable them to get home. And if you move a hive, and you can see this yourself, anyone who's got a hive, you just pick it up and move it just half a metre left or right, and the bees will, co will, will that are coming back to the hive will zoom back to the, where the hive was and they'll be confused. Now, if it's only half a metre or, or up to a metre, They'll, they'll just kind of fly around where the hive was and then they'll, eventually they'll, they'll, they'll think, well, you know, I'm a bit lost, what's going on? And they'll back off a bit and then they'll see the, where the hive's being moved to and they'll find it and they'll move in. So you can move it a metre and they'll be a bit confused for a while, but then they'll find their way home. If you move it more than a metre, then they don't. You can move it two metres away and you can watch them. They'll all just fly around where they were, uh, where the hive was, and they will die. They will die there on the ground or uh, looking for their hive. They'll eventually run out of food. And they'll never find the hive. So it won't result in the death of the hive, but it will result in the death of all the foraging bees coming back to that hive. So that's why, I, and I mentioned it before when I was talking about moving a hive from a summer to a winter position, was that you can step it up to a metre per day over a few days to move it. If, however, you decide that you want to move a hive away let's say for example your house is being sprayed for termites we talked about that case just before or if your backyard is very shady but you want to give them a bit of winter sun so you want to move them into your sunny front yard that would take forever to step them along to do that so what do you, you want to move them further away what you do is you wait until night when all the bees are in you close the hive and you move it to where you want it to be, but it has to be at least a kilometre away. Because if it's not a kilometre away, the bees will start, will leave the new position and they'll reorientate, they'll, they'll leave the hive and they'll say, oh, I've been moved, okay, I've got to learn this new position, and they'll, they'll, mm -hmm. they'll learn it. But then when they fly a little bit further away, they'll see old landmarks. The old landmarks have guided them. They've got fixed in their brain to guide them back to their original location. They'll see them, and that will trick them, and they'll go back to the original location. So you see this all the time from people who uh, – I hear this all the time from people who say, oh, I moved my bees, and they're all um, buzzing around the old position. And, and I explain, well, you know, now you've got a problem because if you move them back, yes, you'll capture those ones, but then there's the, the bees in the new position that will be lost. So, you know, you've, you've created a bit of a problem. 
So, yes, there are rules about moving hives, and, it, and basically exactly as you said, you can move them up to a metre. We say a metre or a mile. Uh, not quite true, but, you know, mnemonically it sounds good, a metre or a mile. Um, uh, short distances are okay. Long distances are okay, more than a, more than a kilometre. But intermediate distances, you've got to do a two-step process. Um, and uh, and you'll have, that's a bit more complex. Again, so you have to read my book. You have to go and buy my book and read that to, uh, to find out the answer to that question. No, not really. You can find it for free on the FAQ um, on, my web, on my website. But, um, yeah, it's, it, it, it's a slightly more complex management process. Of course, and 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 what, one of the last questions I wanted to ask you was about honey. Um, so, you know, I mean, take me for example. I've got my hive. It's I've had it for two months now. Um, at what point will I know when to to get the honey? Um, yeah, to take the honey out to extract well, it. So I, I need to make a, a really clear and strong point here: is that the amount of honey that these native stingless bees produce is very low compared to honeybees. Yep. So, you know, bottom line would be honeybees produce approximately 50 times, five zero times how much a native beehive produces. So a honeybee hive um, is average honeybee hive in Australia, well managed, will produce 50 kilos of honey a year. An average stingless beehive, well managed in a good location, will produce one kilo. So really huge differences between honeybees and native stingless bees in the quantity of honey they produce. So yes. don't expect to get a lot of honey from these hives. Um, and don't expect to get it quick either because if you've only had your hives two months, then, you know, we're in the, we're, here we are in, in January and uh, you, you'll probably, they'll build up hopefully over summer and then they'll probably not, gain much weight over winter and then next spring they'll build up again so the the best trick is to keep an eye on the weight of your hive so weigh it and if you can find out from the beekeeper you bought it from uh, how much an empty hive weighs then you can use the contents the weight of the contents as a guide as to how whether it's ready to split uh, or ready to extract honey um, okay. so it needs to be even heavier to extract honey but I, I do encourage all people to uh, to have a go at propagation first and get yourself set up with at least two hives before you have a go at honey extraction because it can go wrong if you don't know what you're doing and honey extraction can lead to some pretty serious problems for the hive if you haven't done it properly. So get yourself set up with a couple of hives. That's your insurance policy if something goes wrong with one of them. Um, but uh, And then just learn as much as you can before you try the honey extraction process. The honey is remarkable stuff. I like to compare it to, um, you know, truffles versus, you know, your supermarket mushrooms. Uh, one is a kind of an ordinary everyday. One is delicious, and, but it's ordinary and everyday, your supermarket mushrooms. But truffles, then they just take it to another level. And they're rare and expensive, and as is native stingless bee honey. It's rare and expensive, but it's got this unique flavour. And we're learning that it's got some remarkable properties as well. Um, so some recent scientific research has shown that it's got unique sugars, which are low GI sugars. And we also know that it's got some remarkable uh, medical, well, at least antimicrobial properties as well. Yeah, okay. That's, that's, that's good to know. So, that, so there really are more than two or three benefits um, to, to keeping bees. 
Um, yes. And if somebody's listening to this and again, they want to learn more, um, I know there are those, there are those two websites you mentioned earlier, the, sorry, the one website that you mentioned, the one that I mentioned, um, sugarbag.net. Um, there is your book, which I just want to mention has won a lot of awards. Um, so I'm actually going to get a copy myself. Um, and I encourage anyone listening to this to please head to one of those two websites to learn more because oh, like, honestly, just this, I've learned a lot just in this episode and like what you said, I guess it's something that if somebody doesn't want to be involved, they can just keep the hive in their backyard or on their balcony, but there's the option to learn more and, and do more as well. Just one last point is if somebody wanted to get in contact with yourself um, or if they did want to contact the association, um, is that an option? Yeah, sure. The association um, was really set up for people who, who get a little bit more experience. So the association is not so much there to provide resources for new beekeepers. It's a little bit more okay. focused towards those who've got some experience already. So if, you, if your journey, if you're starting off right from ground zero with your, with in, in, on your beekeeping journey, then I, I do recommend you go to a workshop um, yes. or, uh, and, and you know, get, get your knowledge level up to speed on, um, by reading online. Be a bit careful about social media. I think most people would understand that the problem with social media is, as, as a way of learning, is you ask a question on social media and you may get a great answer you may get a completely wrong answer as well. So um, just be a little bit cautious about, about, uh, about that. But, yeah, then once I – thank you for mentioning the Australian Native Bee Association. Uh, once you are up and running and you've got your hive and you do want to take the next step and you do want to come along to a meeting a local, of a local branch of the Australian Native Bee Association, then I would encourage you to go to australiannativebee.org.au AU and uh, and become a member and come along to, to to branch meetings and you can certainly learn a lot more there. Yeah, great. And uh, one last thing as well is in all my episodes, um, I'll always drop a dad joke straight at the end, and I thought it's it cannot be any more fitting than to drop a bee dad joke. <laughs> um, so, so it is. Um, what is the best part of a bee relationship? Tell me. It's 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 the honeymoon period. <laughs> so, I don't know if you have any, but it's. Uh, I, I, I found websites dedicated to bees. <laughs> There's a lot out there. But thank you so much for your time, Doctor. I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, it's, again, I've learned so much and I know how valuable your time is. So thank you for giving us some. It was a real pleasure. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for joining us on Sharing More Than the Sheets. Please make sure you subscribe to be updated with future episode releases. Please visit us at sharingmorethanthesheets.com.au to submit questions or requests for future podcast topics. These podcasts have been brought to you by Better Financial Planning Australia. To book a 15-minute phone chat, visit betterfinancialplanning.com.au.